You're listening to the Strong Towns Podcast. everybody. This is Chuck Marone. Welcome back to the Strong Towns podcast. We talk a lot on this show about housing, uh, about housing growth, about issues of gentrification and displacement. I ran into online, and this is a, a little bit of a, a redemption story for Twitter. I ran into online a very fascinating guy. His name is King Williams. He's a documentary filmmaker. He's a podcaster. He's a columnist and an urbanist. And I asked him, would you be willing to come on and chat a little bit about gentrification? He's done a great documentary called The Atlanta Way about this very topic in Atlanta. And he agreed. And so I'm happy to welcome to the Strong Downs podcast, King Williams. Welcome. Uh, Thank you so much for having me. (laughs) It's really nice to chat with you. I I kind of felt like we would connect because, uh, and I'll I'll start this off the top, on Twitter, you responded to a, a poll question name your top three HBO film characters of all time. And you only gave one, but it was also mine. Do you remember which one you, you provided? Uh, yes, it's only one. His name is Omar Little. That's exactly <laughs> I'm fascinated with Omar and just absolutely loved him and the actor and that, that, whole, uh, that whole thing was amazing. Um, so thank you for that. Can we start this conversation just by maybe having a talk about what is gentrification. I know people use this term in many ways for many things, but, but I've heard you define it and define it well. And maybe we can just start with that as a way to, to kind of frame the whole conversation. Would you mind giving us your definition in a sense of, of what gentrification is? Yes. So by definition, gentrification is the process of either removing or improving an area for middle-class taste, but it doesn't fully get into what gentrification actually is, which is based on Ruth Glass, who's a sociologist out of the 1960s who spent her life's work studying it and actually creating the foundation of what we know as gentrification. She picked that word gentry from an older word, uh, gentry, more specifically referring to the landed gentry of England, which is where she's from. And that landed gentry's process in dictating land use. And as she came with the term, um, she took that word, landed gentry, just took the gentry form of it and then started to call it gentrification as a way of showing what those in power do in order to either dictate or redevelop or plan out land use. And so I think a lot of times people kind of get gentrification confused uh, with things that are really good, which is like positive redevelopment and reinvestment versus gentrification, which always has a negative connotation because of its historic nature and how Bruce Glass set it out. She also spent a lot of time in her career and her life showing what gentrification is versus community reinvestment. And one of the things that you kind of read a lot of her works is that she talks about community reinvestment, which is a lot of things that Strong Towns talks about, which is this idea of how can we bring a place up for everyone to be involved? How can we do a thing that actually revitalizes communities? And she spent her life work kind of going through what both of those things are. Ironically enough, gentrification was something she just kind of wrote about she wrote the word out and she did not think much of it when she did it at the time. And so as that word became more and more popular, people kind of only focused on gentrification and they started looping gentrification with in a catch-all term of everything related to community reinvestment. And her entire career kind of is illustrating what the differences are. And it's now people just kind of lumping into everything. 
Right. That term gentry, are we talking about something that at the end of the day is really a more of a power dynamic? In other words, who gets to make these decisions and who is affected by them as opposed to maybe like the, the flow of capital? Yeah, it is definitely a power dynamic. And that's why she picked gentry in the first place, because the gentry were the nobility and your proximity to the nobility dictated how much power you had. And so that's why she picked that word in particular. Right. I know in the, in the documentary film, you get into this, but I, I wanted to just pause and give an opportunity to, to maybe talk a little bit about the experience of being gentrified. I think as someone who has seen maybe and participated in the other side, the, the engineer, the planner, the developer side, there's a strong case to make about, you know, well, we're going in and we're, we're cleaning up neighborhoods and we're fixing things up and we're making them safer and we're making them nicer places and we're bringing in the Starbucks and the Target and isn't it wonderful? Um, there's, a, there's a human aspect to this that gets to families and social structures and society can you talk a little bit about what happens to people who experience gentrification and particularly, I think, how it affects that family and social structure side of things, which I, I think you speak on so well? I always tell people this gentrification is a social construct that has real world implications and particularly on how people feel. And so when people are being gentrified, a lot of times the number one thing I always get from people is that people feel the sense of hopelessness and powerlessness, and then also a sense of them not counting anymore. And especially in Atlanta, we've had a lot of gentrification over the last 30 or so years, particularly in in response to and in preparation of the 96 Olympics and then everything that came afterwards. Um, there's a sense of people who feel as if their voice doesn't count anymore. And particularly in Atlanta, we've had at least a couple decades now where people have said, we're going to bring in, like you said, the target, we're going to bring in the Starbucks. And a lot of those same neighborhoods want those same things. They feel as if, if they voice their opinion, their opinions are sometimes not as valid or if they voice their opinions, they're not heard at all. And so a lot of the times when the Starbucks comes in or the target comes in or the whole foods comes in, they feel as if these new things, these new amenities, which are good for everyone are not necessarily good for them. And they have a lot of times, a lot of pushback in regards to that. And so you see a lot of like pushback against things that everybody should be for. It's just that the current residents don't feel as if that was built for them. And that being built will actually lead to them either being displaced or them further going to the economic hole in terms of either rent or property tax increases. You just said they feel like it doesn't work for them. Is that a legitimate feeling? Is that a feeling with a basis in reality? Uh, it's a bit of both. They feel it's not for them because in the case of Atlanta specifically, we have a lot of places that have had residents for decades, you know, advocating, Hey, we want to, we want a nice place to shop. We want a nice place to have like a third place like Starbucks. And for decades, these people have been going to city council meetings. They've been talking to the local rep, trying to get other corporations to come in and they've heard nothing. And it's not really until the demographic slightly changed that they started to come in. So they feel as if I live on the West side. And so, if, you know, if somebody lives on the West side for the years and years and years, and then all of a sudden now, because there's a little bit more upper income people that all of a sudden, all the things we wanted for years have finally started coming. They feel as if their voice never counted in the first place. And so I kind of try to document that with the documentary I do the Atlanta way and just the people I talk to day in and day out here in Atlanta. Right. You see the actual physical 
act of you know buying up a space and putting in a target, for example, as you you talked about. And you can see that happening, and you can see the the dislocation and the shift happening. But it's often sold as well. Now there's going to be you know good jobs here, and there's going to be a good place to uh, to shop, and the neighborhood will be safer for people. If that's true, but people don't feel like they're part of the process, is this just a? I'm probing a little bit here, so go ahead and take it where you will. Is this just the the fact that? people don't feel like they're involved or included? Or is this something where they're, they're actually not included? Is this something where this is happening despite them, not as like the fruition of their desires that, you know, now the demographics have shifted, we can do this. You get what I'm getting at? Yeah, I do. Um, I think that there's a, quite a bit of validity to that. And in the case of Atlanta, our gentrification has moved in different ways over the years. And so the reason why people are so upset now about gentrification is that it's gotten to the point where it's, it's stopped displacing the poor and it's now hit the middle class in Atlanta over the last three to five years. Those criticisms are, are pretty valid. We see with, in the case of Atlanta over the last five years or so, every new apartment that's been built in Atlanta has all been luxury. And so we know one of the things that to combat kind of housing costs and things like that are to build more housing. And Atlanta actually has done that. We've built a lot of single family housing. We built quite a bit of multifamily housing and we've built a lot of rentals, but every one of them are aimed for the upper income people. And so even if you are making fifty two, fifty five thousand dollars in Atlanta, if all the home prices are all starting at half a million or, or more or if all the rental units are starting at two thousand or more, you're starting to feel that squeeze now. And so even with the 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 retail choices we see, I see in Atlanta going around, like it's gone from the target now to kind of moving slightly up to the white white house, black market, kind of the, the more upper, upper income, like upper middle income retail districts are starting to pop up more now. And even for the place like target or even the Starbucks, they're starting to see less of those kind of pop up in Atlanta and more things that it gets towards people making over 150 to $200,000 a year. And so the average person now is starting to feel it more because we see it and we see the plans and we see how the retail is kind of being shaped in Atlanta and even our uh, dining district. It's based on a real concern that people are feeling as if, okay, you know what? I thought we were going to all get something good out of it. And it seems that the development pattern isn't really being for us and even people in the middle now. So we need to start making changes before it gets completely unaffordable. The number one thing people in Atlanta are concerned about is they don't want to turn into New York or San Francisco or D.C. They understand prices are going up, but it's going up at such a faster rate that even people within the city limits and those right on the edges of our cities in Atlanta are starting to feel a price increase where we didn't have that before. Why do you think this is happening? And is this inevitable? In a sense, is this just the cost of, uh, of prosperity, as we're often told? Uh, you know, I actually like that a lot. I like that, the cost of prosperity. I'm going to have to use that in an article soon. <laughs> um, so, you know what? I always tell people, gentrification is almost always avoidable. And the reason being is because we know for sure with gentrification, it takes a long time to get critical mass on something gentrifying. So on a side note, people think that the Starbucks is a sign of gentrification. That's never the case, right? Starbucks is moving once that that neighborhood or that that business district has changed in a certain percentage and it's become enough to where they feel it's viable for them to be there. The thing I always tell people that with gentrification is avoidable because you can get the community investment that you want. You get the economic growth that you want. What you want to do though, is as you engage with these strategies, make sure that you have a strong policy for property owners who have regarding their property taxes, 
and having a strong system in place for a gradual property tax increase and for renters, making sure we have policies that are built for affordable housing units, both the new and uh, remodel renovations to keep people rents affordable throughout the city. And so a lot of times with our commercial rents and our residential rents, we know we, in the case of Atlanta, we could do a lot more programming to kind of keep that affordable. And the city council recently has started to do things like that, which is uh, either giving no, uh, low interest or no interest loans for businesses or actually working with uh, new businesses or uh, finding renovated or blighted corridors and allow for people to renovate those areas. But in doing so, they have to include a certain percentage of affordable housing or a certain percentage of affordable retail rent for new businesses to start up. You can get the economic growth you want. You, it's going to take a bit of government, not necessarily regulation, but just under refereeing things. And so what I mean is gentrification doesn't have to be avoidable. The refereeing comes from ensuring that if every new place is being built right now, that we're reaching our goals of affordable housing. And in the case of Atlanta, we have enough property to say, okay, well, you know, we see there's too many apartments being built for people who make over 150,000. We have the land. We're going to start asking for developers if they want to develop on our land for, you know, a tax abatement of 10 or 15 years that you develop for people who make between 30 and 50,000. We have the land to do that. And that's what Atlanta is slowly doing, which is if you're going to build this, we're going to, we see there's enough people who, who have a need for affordable housing. We're going to incentivize the land that we own currently for development of affordable units. We're slowly starting to do that. And it's going to take about five to seven or 10 years to even see if this plan is going to fully shake out. But at least we're starting slowly on making this a counter. I'm going to push a little bit on that. I want you to go ahead and push back. <laughs> Feel free. My critique with that approach has always been, does it scale? If we require in a sense, while you're building the luxury stuff that you also build a little bit of non-luxury stuff and tuck it in here and there. I get that as like a mechanical strategy and, and maybe in a place where it's rapidly gentrifying, it's the only one on the table. Is that a solution in a sense that scales? That's always been my concern. What, what would you say to that critique of, of that approach? I think that's a good critique because uh, in the case of Atlanta, we know for sure our population will probably double or triple over the next two decades or so. And so we're about to find out. But I think it's going to have to take a longer look at whether or not our housing policy is affordable in general. And what I mean by that is that with Atlanta, our housing policy is kind of pretty much laissez-faire. You can kind of do what you want to do, provided you don't develop in a historic district for the most part. So there's not a lot of regulation. And right now, it should be that somebody is entering the market and trying to do that middle or lower income uh, housing, and it just hasn't happened. The scale is what you're talking about. I'm not sure if anybody's going to want to do that right now just because there's no money in it. The number one thing I get from developers all the time and who talk to me off the record, they're like, hey, King, can, yeah, I like your ideas, but unless we get some type of subsidy, we're not going to do affordable housing. It's just no money in it. The scale of what you talked about is going to be it's going to have to come from somebody who either has a lot of subsidy or somebody who has a land acquisition cost of basically zero. And I think that person or that group will probably be the ones who actually scale that up. But I don't for real see it happening yet unless, unless somebody has those two things happening. So I think it's going to be good for a, a certain amount of people to get affordable housing. I just don't know. It's going to be scalable just because a lot of land in Atlanta is pretty much locked up with a few people. Unlike a lot of other major cities, in Atlanta, like this probably for all the property we have, like you probably have less than three dozen people who own probably like 50% of the land in Atlanta. So it's not a lot of people who are making a decision on what they're going to do with the property that they own. Let's talk specifically about Atlanta. I found your 
way of presenting Atlanta. Well, th- this thing you call the Atlanta way, which I'd really never heard of until I ran into you. I grew up here in Minnesota watching the the Turner Network and CNN as a little kid. And, you know, my vision of Atlanta was the one they wanted to present, you know, CNN and Coca-Cola. And uh, I was really shocked the first time I spent any appreciable time there and how Southern of a city it is. It's kind of Northern and it's kind of Southern. It's a very kind of different place. Talk a little bit about the Atlanta way and why it's maybe going to be unique and different than what you're going to run into in cities, both North of Atlanta and South of Atlanta. Yeah. So the Atlanta way comes from a phrase called the Atlanta way of doing things. And that's what I decided to name my documentary about. It comes specifically, actually, what's today, the 25th, I believe, of September, 24th. So it actually comes from a particularly one particular incident, which actually is the, anniversary, the 113th anniversary of today, which is the 1906 race riot. And what happened was for about four days, the local media was fueling stories of, of falsified reports of black men raping white women. It was done as a time to also increase circulation of these particular papers, the local papers, the Atlanta Journal and the Atlanta Constitution. And then a couple of other smaller papers as well. This was done in response to uh, overall growth in Atlanta we've seen since the Civil War. So from about the 50 year or almost the 40 years at that point between the Civil War ending in 1906 and then the 1906 race riot, Atlanta's population was increasing every single year on the year. Um, You had also a a large growth of a, a black upper class and a black middle class, which was causing a lot of resentment. The thing that made Atlanta very different from other southern cities, like you said, is very northern in some regards, is that while segregation was, for most people, the de facto law in Atlanta, it was more hands-off. And so you had a lot more incidents of black people working and living in, in white neighborhoods and vice versa. It wasn't until the 1906 race riot when you had this idea of too many people living in the city. You had this growing black upper and middle class and causing like white working class resentment that these newspapers started fueling these stories. And as a result, we had four days of a riot, which killed dozens of people and actually fundamentally shifted where Atlanta went. So what happened was you saw black people moving then from, or they were at the time, which was on Decatur Street with the the large business districts and things like that, moving up to Auburn Avenue, which eventually created the birth of Sweet Auburn, which became like the Haven. At one point, Forbes in the 1950s called it like the richest Negro street in America. At that point, as a result of the riot, you have four days of it and all of the bad news coverage that was coming out of Atlanta at that time caused both the black elites and the white elites. These are the business elites at the time. I want to be very clear. They then decide, okay, we're never going to have another incident like this ever again. And we're going to work together. And this is how we're going to handle all of our big issues in private. And we're going to use a de facto rule of law amongst the black business elites and the white business elite to kind of run Atlanta. And if you look, it's very similar to kind of how gentrification works, like historically. And so that's why I decided to name my movie The Atlanta Way. And then we kind of go throughout the last 100 years or so of how those two groups of people using the Atlanta way of doing things kind of kept Atlanta out of a lot of problems. So you mentioned Coca-Cola, you mentioned CNN. A lot of these big growth initiatives are a result of the black elites and the white elites, you know, making sure that Atlanta doesn't have too many problems. And can keep growing bigger businesses and growing a bigger international footprint while the rest of the South was going in the complete opposite direction. I know that was super long. No, no. This seems like the literal gentry, you know, to to use the the word. Right. Right. (laughs) Exactly. How is the Olympics and the, uh, the recent Super Bowl and even like, you know, the Atlanta Braves new stadium? How do these things fit into this 
kind of gentry led conversation? Yeah. So, oh God, the, the Braves stadium is probably the best example in the sense that so the Braves were in the city of Atlanta since its beginning. And so you had one particular group, the Atlanta Braves working with the Cobb, uh, the Cobb board in secret to bring the Braves to uh, Cobb, which is it's technically Atlanta, but not the city limits of Atlanta. That's a whole nother story, but Atlanta has a lot of places that are the city limits and then the unincorporated part. And so it's at the part where they thought that the Braves would still have an Atlanta address, but just not be incorporated within the city, but it would be in like neighboring Cobb County. So that was done as a way where this Atlanta Braves talked directly to that Cobb particular commissioner and some of the other commissioners, and they worked out a deal to get the Braves to move to Cobb as a way of facilitating economic growth. That group was not notified with any of the general voters. And so those people who actually facilitated that are no longer in the office. But the idea is still the same. It's like, hey, we have an idea. We think we can grow a business. We want to do this. We don't want a lot of public input or scrutiny. And so literally, it felt like overnight for people, the Braves just announced, hey, we're moving to Cobb. And this is where we're going to be at. It's going to cost about a half a billion dollars in public subsidies to kind of make this happen. And we're gonna, we have a 30-year lease in which we're going to be on the bill for like the police, the fire, and sewer, and the maintenance of the whole time. But it's going to work out. I remember from an economic standpoint, looking at this as an outsider and thinking, this is the crazy, I mean, stadium deals are crazy. This one was like a new level of crazy, right? It, it really was. And even in particular, that part, which is where East Cobb, that is probably like, that is one of the most educated conservative districts in America and financially well off as well. I think the Braves knew it and, and the council person who's no longer there who facilitated, they knew at the time that this wasn't going to be a good deal in the public for the most part was going to reject it because the city of Atlanta was going to reject it as well. But it's one of those things, Atlanta, how they do things sometimes. Like they will make sure they have a decision in the bag and, and the ink dry before they announce it. And a lot of that kind of goes back to the 1906 race, right? And how just, and the, how the, the big business kind of operates where no deal is announced until it's officially done and the ink is dry. And so you mentioned other stadiums too, like the Olympics in particular, I'm writing an article on this now about the Olympification of Atlanta, because that was such a unique way in which how Atlanta essentially started its massive gentrification in regards to the Olympics, that there really isn't a precedent for this. And when studying gentrification or even studying urban planning, we know that Olympics for the most part are at best a 50-50 chance of positivity on the city. Atlanta, the way they went about it, by getting rid of, in some cases, actually busing out the homeless people for the Olympics and having to go through a really like wink and smirk kind of idea to get rid of some of the public housing that was directly where the Olympics was going to be at was so fraught with like issues that a lot of people to this day have a bad taste of the Olympics in their mouth just because of how the city went about it. And it, a lot of people who from Atlanta never fully forgave the city for how they kind of treated the people in Atlanta, how they actually developed the city of Atlanta. And a lot of people to this day won't really, really speak positively about the Olympics that they're from Atlanta. And then the Super Bowl was different this year because this was the first time where the city and the current mayor kind of acknowledged for the most part, like, you know, we messed up in some of our prior events. We're going to do better. So the city put on a lot to get a lot of local artists, a lot of local entrepreneurs, a lot of local vendors from not just within the city of Atlanta, but from the metro Atlanta to kind of come in and really get some of the economic gains. So they, a lot of things that the city typically would really be against which is like street vendors they allow that to happen to have 
and also to have people instead of like a, a large outside contractor to come in and do all the facility events they had everyone from like local tent shops to local like food vendors to local like painters and anything they could do to almost completely 100 percent make the process be locally driven to build the super bowl they did and so that was kind of like their way of saying you know we messed up in the past at least let us try to atone for that some of the other uh, issues were with the super bowl there was a couple murals one of which there was a colin kaepernick mural that the city had completely just knocked down a building two days before the super bowl and it wasn't even in the vicinity where any of the events were it was just near the campus of Morehouse College, they destroyed that. And that prompted a, a huge backlash from the artist community, which they started painting more murals now around it as a result of that. And then there was also this incident, of uh, two police shootings that happened around that time that the city completely buried until after the Super Bowl because they didn't want that type of bad press. So, I mean, Atlanta is still going through its changes, but the Super Bowl was like the first time that they're like, all right, we messed up. And we're going to try to do better. They have the final four next year. And I'm pretty sure they're going to do the same thing. Get as many local people to be involved with the process from beginning to end. And I think that's going to be what they do going forward, just because of so many bad years of bad, bad relationships with the community at at large. Not to be pejorative, but I, I really am interested in your opinion. Is that marketing or is that a substantive change in approach, in your opinion? Uh, It's both. Okay. It's both. I guess you can be both, can't you? (laughs) You know, Atlanta is good at its duality. Yeah, I I respect that. I respect that. I don't want to go back to the Braves thing again too much, but it did seem to me like a lot of the rhetoric around the new Braves stadium was about the redevelopment possibilities of the neighborhoods around it. And that was like one of the big selling points. Did did I miss something there? And is that kind of uh, in line with this gentry-led... Uh, approach that we're talking about? Yeah, that definitely is. And Cobb County might actually strap themselves in the foot on this one. The idea was we believe stadiums will bring economic development. And we believe that stadiums could be our anchor for the new Cobb. And that particular, like I said, is part of Atlanta, but not like this incorporated part. And so Cobb is saying like, we could essentially be the growth and this stadium is going to be our anchoring and our growth engine for all the prosperity that we need. And it seems as if right now, based on what another recent deal that uh, they signed a couple, I think a year ago now was uh, a elevator company that's relocated with a lot of tax breaks. It seems as if Cobb is going to just start doing a lot of bigger developments or at least relocations of companies around the stadium, but using tax breaks to do so. And, I just don't know if that's going to be sustainable long-term because eventually if everyone's getting, you know, 30 year property tax abatements and things like that, I don't know how you facilitate bringing in the money that is taking you to bring all these companies in and letting them live rent free. Amen. Yeah. I, so, I, I have the same question. I know for sure right now, like the sales tax is one of the things they're trying to build up more in the hotel tax, but even still a sales and hotel tax, I don't know if that's going to add up to the, the hundreds of millions of dollars they're giving away for these places to move here. One of the things that that we've argued here at Strong Towns is that the challenge we have is not the change itself, but the pace of change. And and the fact that the leaps that we make in some of these neighborhoods are really too big to bring people with you. In a sense, the mechanism that we're using to upsize these places almost overnight, seemingly, is just designed to dislocate people and and not include them in the conversation. Some of the pushback that I get on that is like, Chuck, you you don't get these big cities. 
these big cities are growing so fast and we have to do it this way because there's so much here. Do you have a sense of, would we be better off with maybe a slower pace of change despite the fact that we'd be giving up some growth opportunity? Or do you think maybe the growth opportunity is something we need to lean into and embrace and just try to find a way to be more respectful or, or bring more people with? Slow and steady wins the race. I get that a lot in Atlanta, and that's one of the things I do see actively going on, which is people are saying, if Atlanta doesn't grow, we don't get this development, we're going to essentially fall backwards, and we could we could lose all the gains we're making. And my thing is, we could still grow, but like we got to really kind of consider how we're growing. I think a lot of it comes with how we're signing off on a lot of like the, the deals that are happening in Atlanta and how we're allowing for a lot of the development here is just like using bad space, like and utilizing space really, really poorly. I think probably like one of the worst in America. And so we look at it long term, like, okay, we're getting all this economic development, we're getting all this growth, but like the way we're developing isn't gonna be sustainable for Atlanta ten years from now. Not even necessarily twenty or thirty. So I'm always under the camp like, hey, let's reconsider some things and like make some ask different requirements for our growth. But right now that is not in vogue with the city or like this business leaders within the city. Yeah. How about the non-gentry? <laughs> One of the things that I struggle with is when I go, when I'm walking to work and I run into people here, a lot of the people who I don't think benefit at all from the new Target and the new Walmart and the new Costco are the most enthusiastic about it. And it's one of those things where when I stop and when I listen to them and I genuinely sit and, and listen, and then I impose my own you know, view on it, I say, well, oh my gosh, what you're actually cheering for is the thing that is going to you know, undermine your ability to, to live in this neighborhood. How much of this is embedded into our cultural conversation? In, in other words, who do we listen to to find the answers here? Where, where do we go about figuring out what that next step should be. I think actually what you guys are doing is strong towns because there's not a lot of places that are actually trying to make nuanced conversations and understanding about gentrification. I know I'm doing that on a personal level and you guys are doing it on like a more institutional level, but there's not a lot of places for people to go to about that. And so it's just right now it's going to take just a critical mass or at least just like, let's say Strong Towns becomes like the number one media source in the world. Like that would also help a lot. It's just, there's not a lot of resources right now. I think to go back to what you said earlier though, about people cheering on gentrification, everybody wants new things and everybody wants shiny things, regardless of what it is. And as somebody who's from Atlanta, who's seen new and nice things, I think that when you starve people for so long in communities, in particular with Atlanta, we have still in 2019, an issue of food deserts where we have entire like, acres and acres and acres of Atlanta that that literally have no place to get food, like not like a convenience store, not a gas station, not a grocery store. So when anything comes, like people are cheering because they've been starved for so long. I think that once people kind of wise up to the fact that, that this new Starbucks is here or the new like Whole Foods is here and they see how much more it costs to do everything, how much more, how much more it takes from the community versus giving, I think people are going to change that too. But everyone wants nice things. And I don't, I don't, I'm not knocking people for that, but if you saw people for so long, anything looks good. That's where I'm at too, is I feel like, you know, we, we had this thing here where we spent $9 million, which is literally the size of our city budget in my small town on a shortcut to the neighboring Walmart. 
And it resulted, you know, one of the things that, that happened in subsequent years was the neighborhood grocery store got shut down. It's amazing to me because I look at it and from where I'm sitting, this seems really harmful to the people who live in the neighborhood. But when you go talk to the people in the neighborhood, they'll say, we're really grateful that we have a Walmart now. We can go to. So I feel like we walk this, we walk this walk, right? We listen to people. You know, we want to, as you said, include them in the process and not include them in the process in a superficial way, but actually have their desires lead the process. But often their desires are the same as the desires of the gentry, right? Yeah, this is very true. And that's one of the, the bigger ironies of gentrification is that a lot of the same things both groups of people want. And I think part of it too is just like the class association with having something, which is, like you said, that Walmart, I mean, Walmart's its own category of, of questionable things. But Walmart in particular, like I've seen Walmart gets so much subsidy from both like local and state governments to just keep Walmarts going that people always forget this, like Walmart could always pull out. And so what happens when that multinational retailer, and we've seen this with Amazon the last couple of years, which is a lot of their backlash when they decide, all right, you know, this area isn't as viable for us or that it's time for us to start paying property taxes and we pull out and then people are really damaged because now that one big box place has essentially replaced 10 or 12 businesses that could have like existed. I do think that the attitudes regarding the gentry kind of people all reflect that because we love rich people. We love rich things, Like that's just who we are. And so we have to kind of acknowledge that we all love some version of a luxury item. And I think part of the rebranding is going to show like what the craftsmanship of like a local thing is and like the benefit of being local. I think that that's probably going to take hold in, over the next couple of years, but it's going to just take time. And so once people realize, you know, I could go to like my local hardware store, which has a better assortment of, of tools and knowledge than like the Walmart heart, hardware store. I think people are going to take a turn against that, but it's going to take a while. In this conversation about gentrification and, and neighborhood development, what is the role of uh, like housing assistance and public housing and, and basically the programs that we've designed to help the very poor and disadvantaged? What, and let me ask it in two ways. What is the optimum role? Like if this stuff is working perfectly, what would we use it to do? And then how close is reality to that? Okay, so the goal of public housing, well, it should be in what it is. So historically, it's been to, as a way, as a temporary way for people to move up into a middle-class lifestyle. We're going to probably have public housing come back over the next 10 or 15 years just because the, the numbers speak to that. And I, I'm not sure who's going to be the recipients of this new version of public housing that comes, but just with the, the, the rise in inflation and inequality, if we keep going this route. And then also just too, we don't think about this, but the number of people who are getting older who won't necessarily either be able to physically live in their homes or just can't afford to live in their homes, I think is going to prompt some version of public housing to come back. I think if it's working, it's optimal. It is essentially a vehicle for especially young people who are of age who just don't have enough money, especially in big cities, as a way to get into that middle-class lifestyle. We talked about where they can get equity in their home. They can live in any particular part of the United States they want to, that they feel is a good and safe community. I think that version of it does exist, but it's currently not being used. I think that the, the global standard right now is probably going to be Singapore and how they do their public housing. And I think that the U.S. will eventually start looking at either Singapore or some of these like Nordic countries on how they're doing public housing as a way to essentially get people 
in a, in a safe housing situation, but then also transitioning them into their own version of home ownership, whether that be through owning a condo, a townhome, a multifamily home. I think that we're going to start looking abroad for our solutions versus looking inward. You asked the rhetorical question in a talk I saw you give, where'd all the people go? And I wonder if in gentrification, there's an answer for that. I'm going to give one and then I want you to react to that too. Do you have any concerns over suburban poverty? Is this something that uh, is an issue that keeps you awake at night uh, to the same intensity that gentrification does? Is it a related issue, suburban poverty? Okay. So I'm very concerned about suburban poverty first to answer that. I think that suburban poverty actually could be one of the biggest growth engines of the United States going forward in terms of how we revitalize and connect our suburbs. I do think there is a big economic opportunity in in there. But what does concern me about the suburbs is that as we see as more and more cities becoming more and more expensive, but also essentially taking all the economic growth away from their entire state, what I'm concerned about is not only just have suburban poverty, but since you have people being locked out of the opportunity to even become middle class in the first place because of all of the concentration of like schools and jobs and just the ability to, to grow within cities happening across the, the country, that actually does keep me up at night. And I think that whoever figures out how to kind of link those two together and essentially link the cities to the burbs and, and grow economically from that, I think is going to be the real winner. Yeah. What do you think of something like opportunity zones uh, it's kind of the hot topic right now in, in redevelopment circles. Is this the gentry made large or is this something that, you know, we can use to do good? I think by actual practice, this could be a, a, a mechanism of the gentry. But at the same time, I think this could be done well. The thing about opportunity zones is that nobody for real has really been biting on them yet. And I think the reason is because no one for sure knows how to actually work within the opportunity zone at scale. And I think that the opportunity zone arguments that's going to be coming forward, which on paper should work really well, this idea of you could redevelop an area tax-free. It sounds good in theory, but in practice, the number of people who actually have capital or the number of people who actually have the ideas and the access to capital to revitalize them are very, very small. And so unless we find a way to get people who have ideas, like on the local level, like if I live on the west side of Atlanta and I understand what needs to be here. I've done the surveys, I've done the planning, I've done the assessments. If I still don't know how to access that money to even do those, I think we're still going to have the same issues. Just because the the person who probably is on the ground, on the local level, who knows what should be there or the universities that are trying to partner with these people, they just don't have the the connections to that kind of scale. I think the opportunity zones do show an opportunity, but somebody's got to be the leader on that one. So I'm not sure. I do think one group in particular who hasn't come into opportunity zones yet, who probably will. And I kind of see this in Atlanta. There's an organization that's slowly beginning in that direction, which is this idea of like the startup community. I think once a startup community or somebody starts figuring out, I can get venture capital and I can even have a, a, a bigger plus, which is I can start a startup that focuses on opportunity zones and businesses within it. And I know that these people aren't going to be paying essentially taxes on this. I think that's going to be a huge opportunity that could really take off in opportunity zones. I'm just not sure what that's going to look like, whether it's like the next Airbnb or it's like the next like modular construction company. I don't know, but something will happen in there. It's just a matter of who can get the venture capital there first. If we step back and look at the gentry, <laughs> that's the term we've kind of been using through this whole uh, conversation. 
if you were to just advise them as a group, like we've got the Atlanta gentry, we've got the central Minnesota gentry, uh, you and I are standing there in a group of them and we're giving them advice on how to do this in a way that is going to be helpful to a broad swath of people, make our, make our places stronger, make them better off. Where do you start with your advice to them? What's the thing you want to leave them with? I would say the vision is this is a 10-year plan. This is not a two-year plan. This is a minimum 10-year plan. And this is a, a play for the legacy of who you are donating money to us. And so what I would say to the Gentry of Atlanta is the next 10 years in your funding would be how we actually change not only Atlanta for the better, but how we be- Atlanta becomes a model on how to do things right regarding economic growth and affordability for both people. So it's going to take time and I'm not going to overestimate what we can get accomplished in one year, but I will believe we'll accomplish every single thing we've said and more within 10 years. So that would be my, like my initial pitch. How do we help them understand what life outside of the gentry is like? How do we tell them to, to get a clue in a sense? I've gotten the impression in following you and in talking to you that, you know, very much like me, you're not questioning in a sense on a broad scale, the intentions of people who are, are gentrifying. You've been pretty generous in saying, you know, everybody feels bad about this happening. But given that, that people feel bad about it happening, what would you tell them to kind of nudge them in a different direction? My thing is for most people, eventually, if you do not curb gentrification, you yourself will be gentrified. That is a doom and gloom kind of answer. But the reality is this. And the other thing is that gentrification does not stop the moment you have moved in and the neighborhood has changed. Gentrification will only stop in which we've reached the critical mass, or at least the capital has, has had no more output. And so like it's reached its potential. And so I think anyone who lives in a gentrifying area should be aware that we see this right now with San Francisco and we see this in New York and both of those places have not reached their peak yet. But my thing is for anyone else who is on the gentry side of it. Now, while you are going to make a lot of economic gains, the economic gains that you're going to make is going to mean nothing if you can't live in a society that's structured or you can't live in a society that's stable. And so for every new economic gain that's going with, with, without any form of balance to it, eventually this will topple for everyone else involved. And so if you're serious about continuing to grow and continue to have the prosperity that you, that you currently are living in, it's time that we start to consider the lack of prosperity that's happening with everyone else. And the way we're going to do that is really of three ways. We're going to go through our housing. We're going to go through our land use, and we're going to go through building up our commercial corridors again, and we're going to need your help to do it. That's how I would try to get to think about that. But it's difficult because everyone has different motives coming in, but I tell people this, and I tell that people, everyone, the same thing on that regard, no matter what you're doing right now, eventually you, you just will not have enough money unless your name is Jeff Bezos. If you don't have over a billion dollars in net worth, eventually you could succumb to gentrification. So there's not too many people who are going to be insulated from its effects if it goes without any form of balance. I hope you and I get to meet in person at some point. I want to tell all our listeners, I basically started following you on Twitter and uh, I really enjoy the interactions there. You're an interesting guy. You have a lot of very interesting to say. Your Twitter handle is I am King Williams. I know you, you uh, do a regular column too. Where can people get more from you besides the, uh, besides the Twitter handle? 
So besides what, what uh, regular Twitter handle, I write for a paper called The Supporter Report, which is the brainchild of Atlanta Business Chronicle reporter Maria Supporta. She is like, she's like the Bill Simmons of Atlanta media. She is like the most veteran OG reporter. She has a great opinion. She's good at fostering talent. And I write there. And so I have a weekly column and it's at supporter report, S-A-P-O-R-T-A report.com. And my uh, document is called The Atlanta Way. It's on all social media channels at The Atlanta Way. We are going to be releasing the film in a few months. And so I would say if you find us on social, please follow us and get our updates on that. And so, again, on Twitter, you can always find me at I am King Williams, And I'm always tweeting out different things on how to follow me. And depending on when this comes out, but on September 27th will be a revamped launch of my podcast called The Neighborhood Watch. And it's conversations with people who are both planners, people being gentrified, and it's getting a, a chance to talk to everyone within the spectrum of gentrification. So you can find me one of those ways, the Neighborhood Watch podcast on wherever you find podcasts. I am King Williams on all social media channels, the Atlanta Way on all social media channels or the supporterreport.com. Thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me. And let's do this again sometime when I'm in Atlanta. I would love to... Uh, to find a way to, uh, to get together and meet. If not this time, I know I will be there again very soon. So let's, let's make that happen. We can definitely do that. <laughs> okay. Thanks so much. Keep in touch, please. I will. I will. All right. Take care, King. All right. You too. Bye-bye. And thanks everybody for listening. Keep doing what you can to build a strong town. Take care. Taking risk is a necessity to becoming rich. It's also a necessity to go bankrupt. Bill, 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 Bill. That's a story. They know that America's one big pothole right now. Just to echo what you said, there are no silver bullet solutions. Chuck Marone, this has been fascinating. The window is not always open, but if nobody's pushing, then once the window opens, there'll be no chance to go through. I like you. I like your vision of the the world. The United Nations Earth Summit, Agenda 21. Yeah.